Hey guys, welcome back to Lords of Order, a DC Dr. Fate fan podcast. I'm your host, Ed Moore, and this is episode 49. If feedback is in your system, you can get it out at the Dr. Fate podcast at gmail.com. BigTimeNoise.com slash Dr. Fate is the website for such. And there are pages that will allow you to do such on Google Plus and Facebook under the name Lords of Order. The book is DC 2000 number one. Scripted by Tom Payer, penciled by Val Semix, inks by Prentice Rollins, colors by John Calise, and separations by Heroic Age, with letters by Kurt Hathaway. Our story opens in 1941, June 30th, 1941 to be exact, as we see a young child playing outside his house with some uh, some sundry toys, most of them sci-fi related, robots, spaceships, whatnot, a huge magnifying glass, and an anthill. Apparently the ants are attacking the toys, and a young T.O. Moro is taking care of dispatching the bad guys by way of the magnifying glass. We then cut to June 30th, 2000 AD, the world of tomorrow. The world of T.O. Moro, who is the despot in charge here, it looks like, as he deigns to give some of his citizenship some food that they are begging for. And we also see that he has locked up Courtney Whitmore, the Star-Spangled Kid, Kendra Saunders, Hawk Girl, Albert Rothstein, the Smasher, and Jay Garrick, Flash, held captive. Cutting back to June 30th, 1941, we see somebody dropping a dime on Spider Slick and Fly Finn. And it is none other then Spider Slick, who made the call. We see them preparing for the police that they just called in, and outside a window here is the silhouette of a Batman. At a nearby police station, Jay Garrick Flash is told of the whereabouts of Public Enemies Number 1 and 2, better known as Spider and Fly. <laughs> and where they are, so Jay rushes off to get them. Sitting in one of the rooms, Fly is watching on his laptop as Jay approaches. Now remember, I said June 30th, 1941. Dude is sitting here playing his day on his laptop watching Flash approach. Flash gets there. Thugs are ready. Conflict ensues. Jay subdues those guys. Police arrive. But Spider and Fly attack with much more high-powered weaponage by way of handheld uh, automatics. One here perhaps is supposed to be an M50, and the other looks like perhaps some sort of high-powered sniper rifle. Jay's not able to stop these. The officers start going down because this is ordinance that Jay is not used to. Now, he's able to stop some of the bullets as Jay is wont to do, but not all, because these are fully automatic weapons, both. 
So it's just too much coming too fast. Jay can't get it all. We see that Fly is taken out and then his weapon secured by what appears to be a batarang at the end of a rope. So we can assume that the leg that knocked Fly out was Batman. Jay rushes up and subdues Spider and they both see that Fly has been incapacitated. Jay runs around because one of the super weapons is missing and he's pretty sure he glimpsed something that put him in mind of a Batman. So he runs throughout the entire building searching, doesn't find anything and stops rubbing his fingers through his hair as he's you know putting all of these disparate pieces together. I mean, strange super weapons, a vanishing Batman, neither of which he's used to. We cut to another doctor's office. No, we cut to Dr. McKnighter's office. McKnighter, Charles McKnighter, is the alter ego of Dr. Midnight, as he is being petitioned by a gentleman selling an artificial heart that looks like a jacked-up Jarvis 7. I say that because that's the only artificial heart name I know. There, there's probably more than that. This looks much more heart-y than the Jarvik 7 ever did. And he's trying to sell it to McKnighter, but McKnighter's not having any of it because he really hasn't seen anything like this before. He's never heard of anything like this before. Very suspicious. And in the midst of their discussion, the heart starts to shrink, and it's starting to shrink out of sight. Hootie attacks, knocking over a lamp, lamp breaks, putting everything in total darkness, which doesn't affect Dr. Midnight. He can still see, and he sees Hootie as Hootie is attacking this small man surrounded by atomic symbols running across the floor, and then he disappears. Myrna, the associate of Dr. Midnight, gets to a light, turns it back on, and everything kind of resumes some amount of normalcy after all of this quick action and whatnot that just occurred leaving McNider to think that uh, it's a mystery that he needs to unravel as Dr. Midnight. We cut to an army base in the, or a military base, excuse me, in the northeast, where the Atom, Green Lantern, Hawkman, and Hawkgirl are attempting to subdue an attack helicopter, much like one of our uh, model helicopters like uh, what was the blue one or the how about the helicopter that had the dude Sinjin Smith in it Nighthawk um, yeah all of these names are escaping me and my associate here next to me is of no help so I guess that's just the way it goes sometimes you know good help's hard to find but a tomahawk, yes, attack helicopter. That's the style. Uh, it's styled like that. And it's attacking the base. They are not able, they being Green Lantern, Hawkman, Hawkgirl, and Adam, as I said. Not Rothstein, Adam, but Al Pratt, Adam. They're not able to do anything, and in the midst of this, a fiery beam lances out, cuts the helicopter in half, causing it to plummet now to the ground the occupants of the helicopter the pilot and co-pilot are rescued 
rescued by the Hawks, subdued by the Atom. As the helicopter is falling, giant octocephalopodian tentacles drop out of a cloud, much like one of the great old ones of the Cthulhu mythos, wrapping up the helicopter, pulling it back up into the clouds. Well, Green Lantern immediately takes after because he recognizes that energy as reminiscent of his green flame. The Hawks pursue Green Lantern. Green Lantern busts through the clouds. This is Alan Scott Green Lantern. And he sees, holding the helicopter aloft over his head, is Superman, accompanied by Wonder Woman and Green Lantern, Kyle Rayner. Now, I apologize for folks that may not be familiar with all of these characters. I'm throwing out both names, but I'm not going to go into the differences or anything like that too much. If, if that's something that you're interested in, my suggestion would be to hit up Wikipedia and then tailor your reading accordingly to learn about these different characters. Uh, there's only been like 578 different Green Lanterns on Earth, including a female and a uh, black Muslim male, most recently, I think, are the most recent two additions to the Green Lantern mythos. Uh, before those two, they were all... Well, no, they weren't all. Three of the four were middle-aged white guys. And then there was John Stewart. He was he was a black man as well. So we've had many Green Lanterns. So here's two, Superman, Wonder Woman. Then the Hawks catch up. We cut to the ground where Adam is there and Spectre appears. I guess Spectre appearing because he has sensed something going on. Adam is attempting to question the pilot and co-pilot of the attack helicopter. What did you call it? Apache? Tomahawk, Tomahawk or Apache? Yeah, whichever one it is. I think I think it might be more like the Apache than the Tomahawk, but whichever. I, I don't know. I'm not a military dude. Whatever. And the one of them is speaking uh, Germanish again, as we have encountered earlier in books having to do with the Justice Society. Superman, with the remnants of the helicopter, fly off, asking Wonder Woman and Kyle to stay and run interference. Finally, as Green Lantern, Alan Scott, and the Hawks are gaining on them, Wonder Woman asks Green Lantern, Kyle Rayner, to slow them down to give she, Wonder Woman, and Superman and himself, Green Lantern, Kyle Rayner, a chance to get away and not be caught up to or captured by Green Lantern, Alan Scott, or the Hawks, Hawkman, Hawkwoman. They do so, Kyle Rayner delays them, they get away, the Justice Society, Green Lantern, and the Hawks are just left there kind of picking their nose. Not literally, figuratively. The Spectre and Adam trace back, based on information that the German agent, pilot or co-pilot, whichever he was of the helicopter, had, and they go to a house in, uh, we don't know where, I'm sorry, Tio Moro's house was, well, we don't know that yet either, I'll tell you that later on, okay, I'm jumping ahead, sorry. Inside the house we have a Nazi flag, we have a picture of Hitler, we have bullet holes everywhere, and we have two, four, six at least, dead Nazis, and a laptop, 1941, June 30th, remember that, it's very important. Apache helicopter, high-powered automatic weapons, laptop, artificial heart, 
June 30th, 1941. In the house is the elder Tio Moro that we saw at the very beginning of the story with some kind of configuration thingy on his head, like maybe some sort of sensor or something like that. And he himself is holding a high-powered rifle as Adam attempts to, uh, shall we say, restrain this individual so that he can be questioned. He disappears. Spectre is drawn by the laptop. Next, we see the assembled Justice Society of America people, and we know that it's the Justice Society of America because they're sitting around a table with a huge crest and symbol in the midst of the table that says, go ahead, you guessed it, Justice Society of America. That way, if there were any questions, now you know who this group of people are. And they are Adam, Al Pratt, Green Lantern, Alan Scott, Starman, Hourman, Flash, Jay Garrick, Dr. Midnight, Hawkman, Hawkwoman, Dr. Fate, Sandman, and Spectre, along with the laptop, the artificial heart, and the high-powered rifle remnants from the Flash's battle. So they're all discussing all these articles that are unlike any other articles that the Justice Society is familiar with in and around June 30th, 1941. Finally, we see the entrance into the story of Dr. Fate. How many pages is this? 33 pages in of the 68 that make up the book. That's far too long for Dr. Fate to appear. Okay? I'm just going to throw that out there. Come on. Dr. Fate was like the coolest member of the Justice Society. He should have been in the story from the beginning. So, he is there, and he and Spectre have kind of a tete-a-tete. Which kind of makes sense, because here, Dr. Fate is a representative, shall we say, is the current avatar of the Lords of Chaos slash Lords of Order. That's kind of iffy, which exactly? The Spectre is the avatar of the Divine God. So you could see where the two perhaps would not see things eye to eye. The Spectre says something about... or I'm sorry, Dr. Fate says... uh, Conventional notions in his mini-soliloquy here, he ends with, conventional notions of good and evil may not apply. The specter counters, they always apply. Good and evil are immutable and absolute. Dr. Fate counters, where did you hear that? From God. And you have a direct line. You clearly do not. (laughs) They say as they're facing off against each other. And finally, the Flash, Jay Garrick, runs in between them and shouts, you know, stop! Why do mom and dad always have to fight? Well, you know, it's it's that kind of thing. So everybody uh, settles down, uh, particularly Dr. Fate and, and the Spectre. The Spectre continues to inspect this machine, this, what we know as a laptop, that he has dubbed the Infomatioscope. Because it stores and displays moving pictures, sounds, and print records like a vast library in a small box. And he opines, I call it the information scope. So he's doing research on it, and the machine itself is uh, fascinating him. But he gets the name that Dr. Midnight ran across of T.O. Morrow, searches for it, and finds an address at 243 Arlington Avenue, 
Greenwich 7, Connecticut. And then you see a satellite picture a la, uh, say, Google, Google Maps, that, that kind of thing. And, you know, everyone is just astounded at the information this thing has. And then all of a sudden, a warning screen pops up on the laptop, says system error, and there's a picture of a bomb. System error. So it's the equivalent of, like, let's say, the uh, blue screen of death. But because they see the bomb, somebody yells out a bomb. The thing's booby-trapped. Spectre, do something before it. And Spectre says, scrack, and blows up the laptop. He says, what a waste. Who knows what else the informatio scope could have done for us. Flash tells him, oh, stop blubbering, Spectre. Kind of harsh, I think. So they go about tracking down various aspects with what information they have. First off is Green Lantern and Spectre. They fly off into space, tracking down energy emanations having to do with T.O. Moro as he appeared in the Nazi house. As they're flying around, they see a spectral satellite. I don't know, I don't think in 1941 that we would have had any satellites in space circling the Earth yet. So the Flash, using his his uh, um, green flame... Oh, shoot, I forget what he calls his power. It's kind of different from the Owens granting of the will-powered rings to the current Green Lantern Corps. It's related, but it's different. And sees this spectral image, let's say, of a satellite, and then they track it, the the energy signature from the satellite on, and Green Lantern is uh, stunned. He says, my God, look where it leads to the Spectre. Spectre seems nonplussed. Spectre always seems nonplussed. I mean, I guess if you're an avatar of God and you can do anything that God grants you the powers to do in pursuit of his missions, um, you would quickly have seen it all, done it all. I, I get, You know, I guess, I mean, realistically. So the specter is like, hmm. Starman, Dr. Fate, yay! Dr. Midnight and the Flash J. Garrick teleport to the teleport via Dr. Fate because he's like the coolest, bestest, just society member ever. To the Connecticut address of one... Thomas Oscar Morrow. The house is kind of ramshackled and beat up looking on the outside, but they go in, or they, they don't go in, they, they go in eventually, excuse me. Um, Starman knocks on the door with his star rod, which I thought was funny. Don't you have better things to do with it than knocking on a door with it? Or use your hand, or, you know, so that just struck me as odd. So they're waiting there, uh, and Hootie accompanied Dr. Midnight, sitting on his shoulder dutifully. There's a joke in there somewhere, but I'll, I'll let it go. A woman um, with some odd-shaped sun, uh, uh, glasses on and a odd outfit opens the door, screams, holy rockets, and grabs Starman by the hand and jerks him into the house, leading him to a room where a juvenile, very, very juvenile, Tio Moro sits, the same juvenile we saw at the very beginning of the book, killing ants with his magnifying glass and you know i mean honestly who who hasn't done that i remember doing that when i was a kid i mean if that makes me something then so be it but i i did that i thought it was cool i used to burn other things with my magnifying glass too but neither here nor there and he is sitting in in a, in a very f- 
futuristically decked out room reading comic books. Uh, no definite titles. Meteor Comics, Weird Science Fiction. Uh, can't really make out the other titles. So nothing, you know, nobody making any kind of jokes about books or anything like that there. And all of the heroes are like, you know, checking out his room. Uh, and they, they just can't believe what all he has. And they ask, why is it like this? And the woman, uh, Tamara Moro, who is Tio Moro's mother, says that they got the idea from the World's Fair before Tommy was even born. They had that big, uh, you know, year 2000 exhibit with the rockets and the moving sidewalks and the flying cars. Well, we thought we would raise our child in that environment, get him ready for the future, because, you know, after all, he's going to end up there. Which, in a way, you can't necessarily fault that logic. But, uh, again, keep in mind, June 30th, 1941. And if you could see this room, it, it's like nothing that should even remotely exist in 1941. She explains to the uh, Justice Society members the name Tio Moro, Thomas Oscar, but if you put it all together, it's tomorrow, right? Preparing for the future. They ask about his father. She says, no, he's dead. His name was Francis Xavier. Does that ring a bell to anybody? Francis Xavier. Xavier Francis, perhaps, if you reverse that. Professor Francis Xavier. Okay. Uh, he was lost in a jetpack accident. Uh, her Francis Xavier Morrow. Well, seeing that it's a child, you know, they're investigating. A child's not going to be responsible for anything. It's not going to be any help, so we'll poof disappear out of here. So they disappear, leaving Tamara holding Tommy, who is just absolutely befuddled at what he has just seen. Cut back to Green Lantern and Spectre. They're zooming into the moon, it turns out. The Lantern, uh, Green Lantern Alan Scott, is just beside himself at where he is. Apparently he's never gone up to the moon for any reason. So he's, you know, this is like his first trip and he's, he's acting like it. Um... The Spectre continues to remain nonplussed. He, you know. So they, were, they followed these energy emanations, energy signature, to this large cache of treasure chests made of green flame. And as they close in, they sense something, Spectre does. And he can't illuminate what it is he sees, so he grabs Green Lantern's, Alan Scott, uh, hand with the ring and says, you know, shine it there. And he shines his beam and it reveals Martian Manhunter. Uh, John Johns, the Justice League Martian Manhunter. Um, I say that now, but I guess I don't have to. There's only one really Martian Manhunter, isn't there? Okay. He uh, psionically, because of course moon, no oxygen, they can't speak. He telepathically says he's a friend Spectre questions that, asks why he's hiding, suddenly makes a bubble of oxygen and lights the oxygen in the bubble on fire because he sees that that is Martian Manhunter's weakness. Then gathers up Green Lantern, Alan Scott, the collection of green flame treasure chests, and the now incapacitated Martian Manhunter whisks them all back to the basement's dungeon's bottom of their... Gotham Mansion, where Martian Manhunter, we see, is chained to a large furnace that is running full tilt. As the Justice Society members are questioning or attempting to question him, the very fabric of 
time and space is ripped asunder, and through the tear appears Wonder Woman, uh, Flash, Wally, Aquaman, Wally West, Green Lantern, Kyle Rayner, Adam, Ray Palmer, Superman, and Batman. Phew. So they have said enough. We've got to put an end to this. They rescue... I, I'm doing air quotes there. Rescue Martian Manhunter. Start... Um, they, they, they start to square off the Justice League and this Justice Society against each other, but they stop. Jay says, wait, this is the Batman I saw in Keystone, and Batman says, that was my mistake. Taking action from a position of ignorance is yours. And the Flash is like stunned... And they're like, okay, okay, let's, everybody, let's, let's hear them out. And Wally West Flash lets slip Jay's name. So now Jay is like, who are you? How do you know my name? Before things get any worse, Superman just finally comes out with it. says, we're the Justice League of America from the year 2000. And then they all introduce themselves. As I said, Superman... Flash, Wally West, Wonder Woman, Green Lantern, Kyle Rayner, Aquaman with the... Let's see, does he have... Let me look here. Sorry, guys. If this is the version of Aquaman... No, he doesn't have the hook on his hand, but he has a big golden fist, which I don't recognize. But um, Batman, Martian Manhunter, and Adam Ray Palmer. So they're trying to figure out what to do. And uh, Dr. Midnight says, wait a minute, you're not seriously thinking about handing everything over? We don't even know these people. And the Flash, Jay Garrick, says, you're right, we don't. You folks hungry? So they go upstairs and they have a mixer. We have all the things here. We have tea and fruit punch and looks like some cookies and plates and napkins and whatnot. They're having a little social mixer here. Everybody's mixing and, and talking and you have the, you know, the two Flashes talking to each other. Hot Girl and Wonder Woman. Batman and Sandman. Off to the side, though, you have Dr. Midnight, who Hawkman is just kind of keeping him company. But Dr. Midnight doesn't like any of this, doesn't trust any of this. And they're talking, and then all of a sudden, Starman's like, hey, where's that Martian? He's not here. And telepathically, Superman signals John... Martian Manhunter is off somewhere gathering up the blue flame treasure chests. Says all leaguers clear out. And so the leaguers try to break off their contact with everybody. And it it doesn't necessarily go smoothly. There's almost fighting as everybody tries to just get away that's in the Justice League. Things are going south. The Flash, Jay Garrick, screams out, Fate Spectre! Wait! Dr. Fate says, I can't believe you dropped an investigation on the word of strangers. And Spectre screams out, Indeed! And he gets a big, nasty, uh, super hyper-powered Spectre face. And screams out, Where is the justice in that? And we see some massive two-page spread of the Spectre head and all the planets of our solar system, maybe other planets of the galaxy behind... In between his two hands is this huge sphere of energy which he's using to capture all the Justice League members except for John Johns who is farther out. He has grabbed him by the cape 
in between his first his forefinger and his thumb and he's holding John John's there. Needless to say, he encapsulates everybody in the sphere. Says perhaps through soul searching they can find the truth. Their souls, their memories, look within your inner eyes, and we see the elder Tio Moro who has taken over the earth. Uh, we saw the justice his that that version of two thousand Justice Society members that were pinned up that I named earlier, and that the Flash brought the Justice League back to nineteen forty one via the cosmic treadmill to try to try to stop Tio Moro, and then while they're looking, the Spectre shows them the shall we say low lights of what the 2000 Justice League of America world is like, which is our world. Four years of world war, weapons that can slaughter everyone on the planet, racial violence, barbarism, widespread dope addiction. The worst filth widely available and as legal as a library book. So-called music that destroys your hearing and upsets the nerves. The dismantling of FDR's reforms, poverty spreads as the stock market soars. And everywhere, guns, we have seen the carnage that arms can inflict. A disgraced president. And the Justice Society is just completely taken aback. And they vow that whatever they have to do, the world of the 2000 Justice League cannot be allowed to come to pass. And then that's the end of the issue as we see... Spectre holding, you know, a a scrying sphere, shall we call it, containing the Justice League of America members. Next time out, DC 2000 issue 2, the culmination of this story. And that is all for this episode. Talk to you guys next time. Ciao. Lord's Porter is a teal production. And as such, is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, non-derivative, 3.0, unported license.